This is Mornings with Simi. We're already hearing from some in this country that, look, uh, just like governments run hospitals, uh, just like they are ultimately responsible for other living arrangements, why should there be privatized extended care homes in this country? Um, Should that not be changed so that government is actually in charge? All right, so that's the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute, Shachi Curl, speaking with our Linda Steele yesterday. They were talking about a survey regarding how we feel on the issue of nationalizing extended care homes. But, you know, a lot of seniors advocates say nationalizing care homes isn't some kind of magic bullet that's going to fix a situation that we find ourselves in. To talk more about this now, we're joined by Michael Nyson, who's executive director of the National Institute on Aging. Michael, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. So what do you think about this survey then where people think that is the way to go? Well, I think what it speaks to, first of all, is uh, a growing, if not a crescendo of concern for seniors. I mean, you know, under normal circumstances, uh, I would uh, easily say that seniors are sidelined, uh, that we have a sort of inbuilt ageism. Uh, a lot of the problems we're seeing with long-term care have been with us for decades. But what COVID's done is, you know, it's unfortunately, it's, it's killed about uh, 5,000 seniors across the country. If you amplify that to their families and their caregivers, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people now who have woken up to the state of long-term care. So it's perfectly natural to say, what's the biggest, best thing we could do? And while going national is uh, is potentially a noble goal, I think it distracts from some of the on-the-ground work that we have to do to improve care as it is right now, quickly and urgently. So where my concern comes from nationalization is that uh, this goes from fixing long-term care to a national discussion on federalism, which then devolves into, you know, who's responsible. For what? How do we pay for it? Right, because I mean, there are other countries that do have a nationalized system that have also fared poorly when it comes to looking after their seniors, is there not? Yeah, I mean, and you don't even have to go outside of the country. I mean, under normal circumstances, Canadians, while we are proud of our healthcare system, there's all kinds of problems we could identify with hospital sectors, with access to physician care, wait lists. So, you know, in a sense, there's a, a certain level of accountability that you get with a with government involvement, but it doesn't guarantee good results. And, and that's why I think our institute is really focusing, okay, what are the concrete things that have to get changed in long-term care? And what's the easiest and best way to do it? Uh, and, and it might involve, uh, you know, negotiations with the federal government, nationalizing it, stripping uh, public, uh, sorry, private services. Uh, but I think that's the harder route and probably the less effective route in the short term. And we're also not starting from scratch. We have uh, across Canada, it varies, but, you know, a sector that is, where the private sector plays a very large role. So I'm here in Ontario, about 60% of long-term care is private. It's it's not clear to me how easy it would be to effectively uh, make national a system that is so reliant on, on private care. Right. And then there's other wrinkles. You know, for example, uh, the government does actually provide all the operational costs for long-term care. And then where the private players come into play is with, uh, you know, potentially nicer buildings, private accommodations, that sort of thing. So it's a complex picture that I don't think nationalization addresses. Right. So then it, we seem to have a hybrid, right, of all these different kinds of systems. What would work then, do you think? Because all people really want is to improve the system and know that if you're putting a loved one or yourself into a care home that you're well looked after. Well, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, it, it will vary across the country, but uh, NBC is doing relatively better than, say, Ontario and Quebec with its long-term care system. Some might point to that as nationalization being effective because the BC government did it. But, you know, all provinces are created differently and Quebec probably more than the rest. But what we're seeing in central Canada is 
very specific problems that are that are that could be addressed without having to go to federalism. So, for example, staffing levels, how we pay the PSWs, how we value them, and how we sort of structure their labor uh, conditions is is a huge factor. So, here in Ontario, you had. Um, PSWs make about half of what they do in the hospital sector. That means they have to work two or three jobs to make a full-time wage. They don't get sick days. And so they've become uh, effectively a vector of the spread of COVID. So that's a very concrete problem. It's not a simple one in and of itself, but it's something that we could address without having to go national. We could pay PSWs more. We can give them full-time work. And then another issue is uh, the fact that we have a lot of multi-bed wards in our long-term care nursing homes, for example. So uh, that's a matter of how do we eliminate those wards? How do we make sure that people aren't going into facilities sooner than they have to? Again, very sort of concrete, specific problems that we could address with any number of tools. And, uh, you know, I, I just, just get a little hesitant when people sort of go from the ground where the problems are to this bigger issue yeah. in the sky about federalism. And, and I worry about losing focus that way. So you're saying create a set of standards, essentially, which then everybody, like a minimum set of standards for everybody to follow, which wouldn't seem that unusual because we do that in all sorts of industries. Exactly. Uh, we, we do that. And, and not only that, uh, you could sort of flip a coin and say with uh, even with universal health care, each province has the, the remit within its uh, jurisdiction to run hospitals as it needs to. There is an accreditation body. There are certain standards, uh, but there's a lot of flexibility. I mean, in, in Canada, health care might be guided by the Canada Health Act, but it's still largely a provincial jurisdiction. So and then, you know, the other factor is when we built healthcare, we were doing it from scratch. And so you could sort of think bigger 50, 60 years ago about how to ultimately get there. We're now dealing with facts on the ground. And I think dismantling a system to rebuild it is probably going to take longer and miss the mark than uh, focusing on the problems we can fix right now. Do you see any provinces, every province does seem to do this a little bit differently. Is there a good baseline, do you think, from which to work and build on? I think we could take a little bit from every province, you know, so so Quebec has an interesting system where it's almost largely or entirely private. You could buy your services, but the government, uh, you know, pays you back in terms of uh, tax credits and so on. That gives people a lot of flexibility. And of course, when we're talking about long-term care, it's important to not only think about nursing homes. That's only one component. There's home care, right. there's retirement homes, there's community living. So it's not, again, a simple analogy with hospitals, which is, you know, one building. So we have to think about all the varied needs, how you pay for that? Does it come under the roof of government? Certainly it should in terms of regulations and standards, but how Canadians pay for them, the kind of flexibility they want, I think that has to be a part of the conversation. Are you concerned then when you hear all this talk about nationalizing, you know, long-term care for seniors that you're right, that the message is getting lost? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's strictly it. I think, you know, if there was a magic wand that we could all wave and, and sort of say, look, this is one way that we could fix uh, long-term care, I think anyone with a good sense would say, let's do it. But uh, I don't think that's the reality of it. Uh, you know, we have to sort of zoom out from our COVID lens for a minute and remember that it was only a couple months ago that Alberta was trying to pull out of the Canada pension plan. Quebec almost never wants to come to the table with national discussions. Uh, Ontario with Doug Ford, I think it's a proud province. It's probably unlikely to give up uh, its jurisdiction. So, you know, once COVID blows over, the the moment to sort of seize long-term care reform has to be seized quickly. Otherwise, we risk devolving into more political discussions and negotiations that blow over the issue. All good points. Michael, thank you for your time on this. 
Thank you very much. It's Michael Nyson, Executive Director of the National Institute on Aging, talking about this idea that's been floated in the last couple of weeks, the nationalization of long-term care for seniors in this country. Oh, but he raises some excellent points there. When, as a country, have we ever been able to agree, especially in the last, you know, 20, 30 years on, oh, yes, we want the federal government to look after this for us, and we're just going to hand it over to them. Uh, He's right. I just don't see that happening. And then in the meantime, are we actually not going to fix the problems that we have with long-term care? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. Every province has dealt with long-term care and COVID-19 in a slightly different fashion. Uh, And clearly there are problems that need to be fixed there. When you look at the numbers, we are still losing people. That's where, you know, people are still getting COVID-19. That's where people are still dying of COVID-19. And so do you think nationalization is the way to go? Or when you listen to Michael, do you think, no, he makes good points. We need to fix it from a different perspective. Let me know. If you've got a loved one that's also in long-term care, how has this impacted you? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, that'll wake you up this morning, won't it? All right, let's check in with Nikki Reitmeyer. She's got a very important public service announcement to talk about, right, Nikki? Oh, yes, Simi. It's this time of year again. It's crow dive bombing season once again. <laughs> people, it's, this freaks people out. And I know it does. I've had a, several conversations with people about this. I'm cool with it. For some reason, um, my dog has a good relationship with neighborhood crows. I'm just going to knock on wood right there. He doesn't bother them. They don't bother him. And we manage to have our walk in peace with no problems. Yes, and this is the kind of relationship you want to foster with the crows as well. And I, too, in my neighborhood, have been very careful to foster a good relationship with the crows. I give them a little salute when I pass. I feed them a lot. <laughs> the odd piece of popcorn here. Show no fear. I try to keep them sweet, you know, because yeah. I know that inevitably comes spring. It is crow dive bombing season once again. There's two very common interactions we have with crows at this time of year. Either you get dive bombed because you've gone too close to the nest, or you've gone too close to a baby crow and you know that may result in a a dive bombing or it just results in you perhaps feeling bad that you think you found this injured crow on the ground when in fact it is actually a baby crow that's just learning how to fly so i think that's pretty common experience for people in metro vancouver people in british columbia uh this time of year i've had that second experience before i thought it was an injured crow because they're quite large when they come out of the nest uh, and it, so I called an agency to find out to say, look, I, you know, there's this crow in the, in the bushes and there's another crow nearby squawking. What should I do? She said, look, don't worry. It's a baby crow. They're deceivingly large. It's a baby crow. It has the blue eyes. Uh, just, you know, let it be and it's going to learn how to fly. So over the course of a couple of days, actually from my window, I got to watch it learn how to fly, which was kind of a cool experience. But, uh, for more information on this, anyways, I spoke to Dr. Sarah Dubois, who's the chief scientific officer with the BCSPCA. She told me, yes, in fact, this is crow dive bombing season. It is. And so this is something we see and predict every year. People are concerned because they see these fairly large crows on the ground and think that they're in trouble and they're injured at adults when in fact they are juveniles. They are really large. You know, they're almost the same size as their parents when they come out of the nest as fledglings, but they have blue eyes and they have a red, really shiny, bright mouth when they open up. So when you do see adults in the area and you do get dive bombed, that's because they're trying to protect their babies and those animals don't need to be rescued, but it's not a bad thing to just, you know, take a photo, send it to the local rehab center and say, hey, just checking that this is okay, this animal's not in distress, and uh, we'll keep an eye on it. 
but you also want to protect yourself. You know, the crows, of course, are going to uh, defend their, their young and, and maybe even protect a nest when the babies haven't come out quite yet. So we have recommended that people could put up signage in their neighborhood to advise their neighbors that there's crows nesting in the area. Perhaps they want to walk with an umbrella or your jacket over your head when you're going in that area just to protect yourself. Of course, it's important to protect yourself, like you said, with an umbrella or, you know, maybe wearing a hat, but be kind to the crows in the process, right? I, I agree. If you can physically protect yourself with a hat or, or something to, to wear, great. But the thing is that crows are so smart and crows actually have, basically have facial recognition. <laughs> they know who's who. So they're no, you know, especially if they have a negative interaction with a person, they will actually pass that on to their family members and they will all get very upset the next time they see you. So that's the fascinating thing about crows are just so intelligent that uh, they remember you year to year. I've actually heard that before, that crows have facial recognition. And I have worked very hard to foster a good relationship with the crows in my neighborhood. (laughs) That's great. They'll remember. They will remember you. (laughs) That's good. But uh, that's true, though, eh? That crows can remember your face. It is. It's amazing research that came out of the University of Washington. They spent almost 20 years doing this research and basically putting on funny masks and doing things that would either upset the crows or make the crows happy, and then seeing year after year if the crows had any particular reaction. And the amazing thing is is that baby crows were taught by their parents what faces were mean, even though they'd never seen those faces the previous year because they weren't born. So they pass it on, you know, some type of communication to their offspring as to what are threats. Well, it's fascinating stuff. And if anyone has any more questions, if they have a crow's nest in their neighborhood and they want some more information, should they go to the website? Should they reach out to the BCSPCA? Absolutely. We have a provincial call center. They can call us at 1-855-622-7722, seven days a week. That's good advice there, Nikki, because this is a very uncertain time of year. People aren't sure what to do, and they're also get, they get freaked out by the crow's dive bombing. Yeah, some people have the best intentions. They just want to help the crows. Others hate the crows (laughs) and they inevitably end up getting dive bombed. It seems like most people have a story of being dive bombed somewhere around Metro Vancouver. I also really enjoy the news stories that come out around this time of year because they always do a TV news story about crow dive bombing and it usually adds to some (laughs) some pretty funny news footage. Yes, wait for it. I'm sure we'll be seeing it soon. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we were talking about crows earlier because it is dive bombing season. Some people apparently have a problem with that. I'm cool with it. I think it's fine. They're just protecting their nests, right? Like, what are they supposed to do? They're protecting the baby crows that they're having there. But some people are uh, quite traumatized by this, like our next guest who joins me now. It's Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Hi, good morning, Simmy. You're quite traumatized by crows and dive bombing. Tell me what happened. Well, this time of the year at the BC legislature, there are normally signs outside the grounds warning uh, people who come to the legislature that this is aggressive crow season at the legislature. The crows around the legislature have, for more than 100 years, been regarded as particularly aggressive and given to dive bombing people, uh, political columnists, politicians, <laughs> equal opportunity dive bombers, <laughs> visitors to the ground. And right. So it's not all that funny, I'll have you know. 
Uh, but, oh, it actually uh, yeah, is. Actually, it is pretty funny when you think <laughs> about it. But, it, of course, I'm wondering what's happening this year because, as you know, I'm isolating at home. Um, I would have to think it's not a target-rich environment around the legislature. The place is shut down. Uh, let's see, who would they have to dive bomb this year? Well, uh, Mike Smith, he's going into work uh, doing his show for NW from the basement. Keith Baldry is there, but uh, I don't think they'd dare go near him. Uh, sure Dr. That... Bonnie Henry, they <laughs> wouldn't dare for sure. With Baldry, I'm sure the hair kind of looks attractive to a crow from a distance. <laughs> you know, you that's don't know. interesting, because <laughs> one of the theories, okay, you, there, there are... This thing has been around for a problem for so long that there's all kind. There's even a whole book about the problem of aggressive swooping crows. Um, so the theory is that the crows pass this on from generation to generation, that the little crows are raised to attack. Um, and, and why do they attack particular heads? Well, one theory is baldness. Um, we oh. had an MLA who had a couple of stitches in his bald pate a few years ago because he got swooped. Um, obviously, you're right, that wouldn't apply to Baldry, who no. hasn't had his hair cut yet. Um, and another one, uh, you're going to love this. This is an academic researcher who suggested this. The crows confuse a certain color of hair with Weasels. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody sent me this is a note when I got sweet, and they said, now they understand, right? <laughs> Members of the press gallery, weasels. Yeah, right. Listen, the crows are just doing what they're supposed to do. You're going to work, sure, but they're defending their family. So aren't, Their family isn't anywhere in sight. This is oh, sport you're sensitive for the crows. On this, topic. This, is, this is their main form of recreation at you're this showing time weakness. of the year. I'll tell you something. You know me, right? You know what I'm yes. towering in the basement over. <laughs> Bring on the Asian giant hornet. What? You're saying you'd prefer the giant hornet? No, but to... I figure they might be able to deal with the crows. No wonder you're at home, Vaughn. I don't think you should ever step outside again. I think you're just safer at home. Just keep working from home. Emmy weasels. That's it. <laughs> Thanks for that, Vaughn. Bye-bye. Good luck. That's Vaughn Bomber for the Vancouver Sun. He better not venture outside because, yes, it is crow dive bombing season. Some people, they really feel strongly in support of the crows on this. I did have a couple of emails from people saying it's not the crow's fault. No, of course it's not the crow's fault. Uh, but let's face it, some of them are a little more vicious than others. Some will just try to scare you. Some will out and out definitely try to make you feel a little physical pain to stay away from their nests and protecting their families. So, yeah, I think it's just safer for Ron to stay home on that front. If you got a story to tell me, and I'm sure a lot of people do, about crow dive bombing, maybe you've had some interactions there. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. You can also check out our buzz line, 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Sometimes you just can't tell when you're going to hit a nerve with people. Today we we're talking about crow dive bombing season, which is clearly underway. And there are a lot of people out there who have a story. Nikki Reitmeyer back with us. See, Nikki, I think you, you got onto this with people. Because you're right. I think everybody has a story where they've either been concerned for the welfare of a crow that they thought was maybe an injured crow, but it turned out to be one of those juveniles who's learning how to fly or they've been dive bombed by mommy and daddy crow who are trying to get you to stay away from that little baby. Well, show no fear. That's always my motto, right? Because I feel like they, they'll recognize you. If they know you're scared, if you're like crouching and you know, if you're scared, they're going to come after you. They're (laughs) sometimes, you know, they, they recognize that. You're telling me that you think that crows smell fear? 
Oh, yeah, I think they do. <laughs> I think they definitely do. See, I have tried to foster a very good relationship with the crows in my neighborhood. I love crows. I think they're brilliant. So I feed them popcorn from time to time. I know someone's going to call in and say, oh, you know, don't feed them popcorn, whatever. I, I, I try to foster a good relationship with the crows. Right? Well, yeah, no, come on. I, I feed them a little bit. I make sure they're my friend. So now when I pass them, I give them a little salute, a little wave. They give me a little wink back, and we've yeah. got a good relationship going on. Right. You just got to give them their give them their space. Give them a wide berth. I had a couple emails on this, for instance. Rosemary oh. emailed me to say, I was crowed, and she put that in quotation marks, I was crowed <laughs> last year at UBC's Westbrook Village. She said, a baby crow was on the ground, and I walked too close to it, Rosemary says. The parent crow hit the top of my head with its beak, which caused Oof. a two, she said, millimeter deep cut, and it was painful, Ooh. she said, but it was entirely my own fault for getting too close, and she said, I feel honored to have been crowed, and she said, you know what, a human parent would defend they're young as well if a stranger got too close. I thought she makes a good point. I like that Vancouverites are turning crowed into a verb now. Did you get crowed the other day? <laughs> yeah, I was getting crowed when I was walking past it. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I think it happens to people. I had another email from Jim who said, uh, you know, way back when I was young living on a farm, my mom decided that we should walk the mile or so to visit my aunt. It wasn't a crow, he pointed out, though. He did get attacked a bit by an owl. Now that would be scary. Oof. Yeah, my dad has a story about getting attacked by an owl once. He said he was going for a run, and he was wearing a toque. It was kind of a, a fuzzy, fluffy toque, and a, an owl swooped down, grabbed him by the toque, and lifted it off his head. He said, oh, I man. think the, the it had that little fluffy top. He said, I think he thought maybe it was a rabbit and the rabbit's tail kind of jogging down the road. But I bet we have some listeners who've also got some good stories. If uh, if we have time for any right. calls, give us a shout. 604-280-9898, because there are some pretty funny stories about about the crows doing their dive bombing. And also, as we point out, though, we understand why they're doing that, right? They're protecting their baby crows. It's the season when the baby crows are learning how to fly, getting out of the nest. So you know you want to give them a wide berth. And if you know there's a particular block where they're perhaps a little more protective than others, then maybe you should just avoid that area. Give them a little space. Absolutely. You know, I think we can still laugh about it. We can still joke about it. Of course, look, I love the crows, as I previously stated, and we know that they're doing this to protect their young. But come on, there's nothing funnier than watching the news footage around this time of year and seeing either the reporter well, who's out there reporting on crow dive bombing and getting bombed or someone in the background, inevitably, of that camera shot getting dive bombed as well. Uh, the longer I do this show, though, Nikki, the more I learn about people. For instance, I'm learning a lot about Von Palmer, right? One, that he has a fear of the Asian giant hornet. And two, as we learned this morning, also dive bombing crows. Vaughn sent me an article that he wrote. It was back in 2006, where he explored this ongoing issue of crow dive bombings at the legislature. And he <laughs> referenced all of these these articles that had been written over time by other reporters through Victoria history about the crow problems. Back in 1986, there was an article titled Crazed Crows Attack People. Back in 1903, <laughs> an article written in a local paper, Wage War on the Crows. Well, you know what, Nikki, we've got a call from Dave, who's apparently got some breaking news for us this morning. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. How are you? Good. What just happened to you? 
I was just walking over with my coffee from Lower Lonsdale up to Fourth, and uh, was dive bombed on Second Street in Lonsdale okay. just moments ago. <laughs> no way. So what did you, did you have to duck? Like there was this crow particularly. I, I ducked a little bit and just walking. They followed me for about a block. Oh, it liked you. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you before? Never. Oh well, there you go. It's marked you now, Dave. You better find a different route home. That's right. I will, too. Have a okay. great day, guys. You, too. Thank you for that, Dave. See, now, I think Dave's a marked man, Nikki. He said, that's it. You can't go back that way. That crow knows. That crow, that guy ducked. I'm coming after that guy. Well, right, because when we spoke to Sarah Dubois from the BCSPCA earlier, she said that crows can remember people. If you can physically protect yourself with a hat or something to, to wear, great. But the thing is that uh, crows are so smart, and crows actually have, have facial recognition. <laughs> they know who's who, especially if they have a negative interaction with a person. They will actually pass that on to their family members, and they will all get very upset the next time they see you. Oh, my goodness. You're telling me that the crows gossip. That's what, they're, that's what they do. <laughs> Right? Yeah, I guess you could put it that way. Sure, the other she crows, just said it. they gossip. <laughs> yeah, the crows tell the other crows it's family and friends, and they go, "Hey, see that person there? Don't don't be nice to that person there." So that's it. That's what you have to be very nice to crows, especially nice at this time of year. That's good advice, Nikki. Thank you. Thanks, Simi. And stay safe out there. That's our Nikki Reitmeyer. If you've got a crow dive bombing story you'd like to tell us, it does happen to a lot of people. You can email me, Simi at cknw dot com. This is Mornings with Simi. Okay, so there are not one, not two, but three motions about alcohol consumption that will be debated at Vancouver City Council today. Three. And here we are in the middle of a pandemic, and Vancouver Council has been criticized, rightfully, I think, for not responding fast enough to so many other issues. Is this where they should be focusing their priorities, especially since alcohol consumption in parks, one of the motions to be debated, really isn't even in their purview? Let's talk more about this uh, for what he sees happening at City Hall these days. Former Vancouver City Councilor George Affleck joins us now. Hi, George. Hey, Simi. What do you think about it? Is this like a waste of time? I think it's a waste of time. <laughs> Party at City Hall. Woohoo! All right. This <laughs> is all what they want to talk about. I mean, I think it's an, it's an issue that was definitely been around, and it, it's one of those issues that absolutely, with all the you know horribleness that's been going on, hey, it's something, you know, let's chill out. Let's have some fun. I get it. I get it. But seriously, three emotions this council. I think there was like a couple more last time. Um, I mean, get it together, you guys. Get <laughs> Write one motion and give staff direction together, uh, unify the council, and, and just get your act together, because it, it's a bit ridiculous. Yeah, let's talk about this. This is something I've been wanting to talk about for a while, sort of the performance of, of watching this particular council respond. Other cities have been very quick to respond with more pedestrian spaces, more spaces for people to stretch out. What is taking Vancouver so long? Well, obviously, it's, it's complex. Vancouver is very large. We ha- we have uh, challenges with our streets and, and the way it's designed. We don't have uh, we have you know, some major arterials. We don't have a highway going through our city. All that kind of stuff. But, so there's, there's complexities in closing off streets in our because of the buses. All that kind of stuff. So it is more complicated. Um, and but I think staff have actually been on it and they actually presented a report at last council meeting that provided a roadmap for what they will do. And they basically challenged uh, council saying. You know, we're not, we can push the boundaries of this, but you may get political pushback. So we'll we'll come back with some stuff here, but prepare yourself because you may not you may be a bit afraid of what we might suggest. There's sort of that that sort hmm. of 
uh, comments going on. And, and I think that'll be interesting to see what kind of stuff. We've already seen some stuff happening with quick turnarounds for some patios opening up. But so I, I feel like staff are on this now, and I think that the council needs to reprioritize its time uh, and focus on more important uh, things that they should be doing. Like what? Well, I mean, actually, there is a report to council today, finally, about the budget and about the financial picture. And uh, contrary to the mayor's uh, announcement to everyone's surprise that we were going to be bankrupt or uh, it, whatever term he used, right. uh, that is not the case. The report today provides a roadmap to how uh, the city can find $100 million that it's going to be short this year. Uh, it provides three scenarios, one for August, one, uh, one for April, one for August, and one for October. Uh, and the plan is we'll assume that things will be somewhat back to normal by the end of August, and here's how we will find the money as the report states. So they they finally are providing that, which uh, should uh, quiet the, the, the mayor down a little bit and provide residents a feeling of that there is some management going on at City Hall by somebody. Yeah, did you feel that that, that, that kind of idea took a bit of a blow, right, over the last couple of months? Because you expect your leaders to lead and calm people down, and I don't think a lot of people felt like that was happening. Yeah, I know. there's roles and responsibilities at each level of government. And I feel like in the, in, in the case of this pandemic, health and employment uh, have been a priority for the federal and provincial governments. Um, city governments, on the other hand, really, they need to take a step back and just kind of, you know, look at how do we inspire our residents? How do we keep them calm? What can we do to alleviate some of the stress that we're all feeling with all of this stuff going on? And it felt and it certainly proved that the, the mayor was not in touch with that. And he was uh, making announcements that were just making us all panic even more. And I thought that was so unfair of him uh, to do that to us in that period of time when we were all so stressed out about so many things. Now that we're seeing some kind of light at the end of the tunnel, uh, you can get serious with those issues. But at that time, I think we were looking for inspiration from our local leaders. And we didn't get that in Vancouver at all. Yeah, and what do you think then, uh, as lessons as a city that we have learned during this that we could perhaps apply going forward? Well, we're learning about uh, housing, and uh, we're learning about uh, what happens when the economy crashes, and we're learning, you know, certainly learning about that and, and the affordability issue and all those things, how it's tied to the economy, uh, and that we need to think about that and how that complex that issue is. There is no quick fix to the housing issue. Uh, you know, taxation, what are, the, what are the things that we can do to fix it? We're seeing now potentially a significant increase in rental opportunities in the city. Um, why was that the case? You know, the whole supply and demand argument where, you know, it's really going to make staff and I think the politicians take a step back and go, okay, now we understand what happens when the economy crashes and what happens to housing and what the real numbers are. Right. Um, how do we make that work in the future? And I think that's been interesting for sure as far as one of the issues. And, of it, course, speeded process of making decisions yeah. is something that's important too. No kidding. Have you noticed a difference in the number of listings out there? It's something that I've kind of been monitoring, and it sure seems like there's a lot more kind of one-bedroom, two-bedrooms available. Uh, for sure. I think a lot of basement suites that you're seeing opening up. I know my daughter who lives in Kits in a, in a small little one-bedroom pays $1,600 a month, which she thought was a great deal a year and a half ago. Now she's kind of poking around going, well, what else is out there? Uh, so there is those, uh, those stories you hear. Uh, there's no real data yet on what's available, and we'll see what comes from, uh, from the, in the next few months. Uh, but certainly we know, you know from people that we talk to and people who are renting 
uh, and out there, especially young people, they're seeing way more opportunity for the kinds of units that would be more appropriate for their lifestyle and, and the rates going down and, and there being no lineups for rental units, which would be, we were seeing before. No kidding. Let's talk some businesses as well here, because obviously we're going to have a problem with uh, some empty storefronts. I think a lot of businesses may not make it through this. How can City Hall, in your opinion, help out? Yeah, I think we're the, one of the main disappointing uh, things that I felt that we haven't addressed. And I'm a small business owner, uh, full disclosure, and I have not been provided any uh, incentives or anything from the city except some deferment conversations. But there's been nothing for small business in the city during this pandemic, and I don't see anything on the table at this point from uh, City Hall to address that and, and in Vancouver. Some other communities are doing some things for small businesses, but Vancouver really hasn't done much at all. Uh, and I think that the stress, the, the challenge will be, you know, okay, retail uh, is definitely being, uh, we've seen the problem for quite a while on the store fronts disappearing, Amazon's power over, over the markets and how that's impacting how we shop. Um, so, you know, development, and that's been a discussion at City Hall for some time. How do we develop our communities uh, to keep a, a vibrant streetscape, uh, but also help small businesses in, in, in how they can rent their units, especially really smaller, small, small businesses, you know, four or five staff. Uh, they're really uh, have always been challenged. But again, it goes back to that issue of opening up this whole work at home thing. Yeah. Um, I think that's where the city can really get engaged in saying, you know, there should be some taxation uh, leverage. There should be an ability for us to have staff that work in our homes. We can't do that right now. You know, let's do that. Why not? Um, if I have two staff, why can't they come to my house and work around the kitchen table? Um, that kind of stuff, I think, is now that we all know we can work from home and use Zoom as our magical uh, platform for talking to people. Uh, I think that, that cities need to think about how they build our cities and how we build our homes and how we tax our residents in, in that, with that in mind. And I think that though that will also cause a lot of rental units, uh, you know, lease hmm. units, smaller uh, offices to open up in, in the coming years, I think, because if you have a staff of three or five, why would you rent a $5,000 a month office space yeah. and pay and half of that going to taxes? Why? Why would you not just work from home and, and use Zoom? All issues that I'm sure we're going to be talking about. George, thank you. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, I think people are itching to go somewhere. We saw that, right, with some crowds on the weekend. We've certainly seen it in other parts of the country. Look at how many people wanted to go camping yesterday that they were trying to make a reservation. What about going somewhere local, like, say, to White Rock, having a walk along the beachfront there, maybe a walk on the pier? That hasn't been possible for the last few weeks. White Rock, you know, has very clearly said, we like you, we love it when you come and visit, just not right now. Well, that may soon be changing. And we thought, let's get an update on this. So joining us now to talk more about that is Daryl Walker, the mayor of White Rock. Good morning. Good morning, Sumi. Do you think people have been fairly good about staying away? Like, what have you seen in the community? I think they I think they truly have. There's, there's still the locals, um, White Rock and so Surrey, folks that want to come and walk on their beaches. They'd love to walk on the promenade. And that is something that will be coming soon. But I think for the most part, people have been respectful. And my hope, and I think the hope of our entire province is they continue to do that, that while you can come and visit, please distance yourself from others. Don't congregate in large groups. I think Dr. Henry has pointed it out. And we can continue to grow our way out of this pandemic. Right. But Mayor Walker, I think people are getting a bit restless. They want to go places. They want to do stuff. (laughs) They want to spend money. They want to get out. You're absolutely right. Everybody does. Everybody wants to get around and see friends. So, yeah, we're, we're going to start giving them that opportunity come later on this week. 
Uh, we've agreed to uh, open up additional parts of our parking. It'll be close to 50% of what is available in White Rock, primarily so that our businesses that are starting to reopen will be able to have their customers there for two or three hours to enjoy a meal, maybe a drink after it. Our promenade is going to be open later on this week. We agreed last night. It's just a matter of our engineering department getting the work done to open things up. But we do um, let we want to let people know that this is not necessarily forever. And if it gets carried away and we don't like what we see down there, we will have the option of closing things down again. So what do you classify as something that you don't like? Uh, well, as I said earlier, too many people congregating. We'll see what the numbers look like. 50% of the parking doesn't mean that we can load the front up and people can go anywhere they want. Groups, large groups, and, and I hate to say it, but it's primarily young people, and I get it. We were all young ourselves once that want to get together and play their sports or whatever, but please respect the fact that we're still in this pandemic and working our way through it, and you are the ones that can really help us. The seniors, others are, are taking it very slowly. They understand the danger, so we don't want large Large groups congregating, um, and we want people to be respectful of distance and respectful of of others as they go down there as well. But as you said, though, a number of restaurants, it sounds like, are opening up along the waterfront there. That's right. And it'll be probably about 50% of what they were or are capable of taking in in normal time. So it won't be chock-a-block in the restaurants, but uh, there's a lot of other places down there that people will simply want to go. If they go and get fish and chips, make sure that wherever you decide you're going to have them isn't right on top of another family who's enjoying their fish and chips. Find some spaces there. And when the beach is open, when the when the tide is out, there's lots of space out there. I believe the First Nations are, are reopening or have reopened their parking lot. So parking isn't an issue. The issue is making sure that you're not on top of each other, that you're respecting distance. Right. So then will there be any enforcement of this? Well, the enforcement of it is, is something that is, is more self-regulated. I'm not sure that there's actually a law that lays down that you can't have more than five or six or 10 or 15 people together or that everybody has to be a distance apart. Most of the restaurants will have lines of demarcation along as they go into their restaurant or you go in and pick up fish and chips or whatever. But a lot of it really comes from ourselves. It's us that the general public can help can help to get us out of this pandemic. Um, we, we don't have enough bylaw officers or police. There aren't enough health officers to be able to stop everybody from being too close. So common sense needs to prevail. And I think that's the message we really need hmm. to get out. And I, I believe that's Dr. Henry's message. So is council going to be voting on this, the potential for reopening the waterfront? Uh, it was done last night. We we will, by the end of this week, and I, I'm not sure if it'll be Thursday or Friday. It's going to take a, a few days for them to get everything in place. Uh, the promenade will be reopened, and about 50% of our parking will be reopened. Okay, so then that, I mean, that sounds like an invitation, I'm sure, to a lot of people, but you would still, oh, really? you would still <laughs> like people to think twice, though. <laughs> well, would, you know, have fun. Come on down here, spend a few dollars, enjoy whatever, but respect the fact that we're not out of this. And as the curve has gone down in our province, and we've seen it around the world, it could very easily go back up. So we've got the potential of having an enjoyable summer where people respect everybody and themselves. Or we've got the potential of doing it wrong and having to clamp everything back down again. 
I know that's not what anybody wants, but you have to think sometimes about what you're doing so that you make sure that that's not what happens. All right. I'm sure we're going to be talking to you more about this when we see what happens. Uh, Mayor Walker, <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for your time on okay, that. Bye-bye. That's Daryl Walker, the mayor of White Rock. So council and mayor in White Rock have voted to do a phased reopening plan of the promenade and the pier area there because they've got some restaurants going back in business. So they're saying, yes, we're open Kind of. They don't want a huge rush of people. They want you to remember that physical distancing. So we're going to see how that goes. You want to weigh in? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been processing 10 reservations every second. Over 27,000 reservations have been made uh, between 7 a.m. and 11. And that's double Parks Canada's biggest day. That was Environment Minister George Heyman talking to our Mike Smith yesterday. Tens of thousands of people tried to book some kind of provincial campsite yesterday in the hopes that they might be able to get one. About 43,000 people had managed to do so by the end of the day, but that still left a lot of people, I'm sure, out in the cold. Uh, So a lot of people went from looking at provincial campsites to private campsites as well. We wanted to talk more about how they are faring with the rush on camping. So joining us now is... Ali Abulfathi, the owner of the Squamish Valley Campground. Ali, thanks so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. How's business these days? Uh, business is picking up. It was slow for a while. And yesterday we had the record call. And uh, like we had over 400 emails that we have to answer. And the phone was ringing continuously. And just like, it seems like people are mad rush to yeah. book the campground at the first day. They are. So how many, but like, would you say you're booked for the next few weeks or when are you reopening and what does your summer look like? The summer looks pretty good and we're already 90% full on the weekends. But uh, surprisingly, not many people like to camp during the weekdays, which there's lots of room and lots of space. Everybody wants the weekend and long weekends. Right. So that's where you are all booked up then. Have you seen demand like this before? Is it usually like this in the summertime? This is unusual. This is unusual. Like for the last 10 years, I've never seen such a demand. So how are you going to manage this then? Are you asked, like, are you physically distancing people? Do you think there's enough room in the campground already? You see, that's another thing. Like the site, usually we put five to 10. We have sites like we could put five up to 50 people on those sites. And, but we have to have a safe uh, distancing, and the site, we could put five, we put only two. And we're trying to have less people in larger areas, so we have a big buffer between two sides. Like, we have 10, 15 feet buffer we manage to put on every site for social uh, distancing and safe distancing. Right. Has that reduced the number of uh, sites that you actually have available then? Yes, it does. The number of people and the site and also increase our services. Like uh, since we are by the river, we got one mile of sandy beach riverfront. We have 200 acres. Nice. And um, so what we do, we have to spray our porta potties with bleach and let it set for 60 seconds and then pressure wash them. And then after that, we spray disinfection to the sensitive area so people come in contact. And I advise people, they come camping Please bring your own paper, you know, like uh, and bring paper. garbage bag, <laughs> you know, things like that. Right. Okay. So then you, Ali, you're expecting a pretty busy couple of months. 
Yes, we are. Okay. And we want to help people out too, because you said you've got some availability. So where can people find out more information? The best place is to email us, like info at campsquamish.com, or to go to our webpage, which is uh, campsquamish.com, and all the information is there. All right. Listen, good luck, Ali. Thank you. I'd like to add something, if I may. Sure. Uh, I'd like to remind people, please be responsible. This beautiful country we have, clean air, fresh water. Please don't pollute. Don't just let your campfire run and walk away. Make sure your fire is off before you leave. Pick up your garbage because all those garbage are going to end up either in bear's stomach or in the ocean. We have to protect this beautiful nature that we are lucky to have and oh. living in it. Ali, are you telling me that people do that? They come to this beautiful campground on the river, gorgeous location, and they just like leave all that for somebody else to look after? You know, it's amazing what you see. It's, it's sad sometimes what you see. I encourage people, like, if you see your friend is doing something stupid, I'm sorry my language, and having a like, big bonfire and just throwing beer can or breaking his bottle glass on the oh. rocks, and, and, you know, please stop him. It's just like a, stopping a drunk driver. If he doesn't know what he's doing, you should be able to remind him, please don't yeah. do that. Well, that's good advice. Ali, thank you. You're welcome, and good luck. And Good luck to you as well. Have a great, safe summer. Yes, let's do that. Thank you. That's Ali Abulfathi, owner of the Squamish Valley Campground. Beautiful pictures, by the way, when I checked out their website. And yeah, it's hard to believe people act stupidly, but sounds like Ali has seen it all before. They are also very busy, 90% booked for the weekends of all the summer, but they said they do have availability during the week. If you'd like to check them out, because it sounds like people are going to have to look for some kind of alternative now, uh, given that provincial campgrounds are really booked up. However, do remember that when it comes to provincial campgrounds, anyway, there's more availability coming online. Right now, they only had reservations open until July the 25th. So from the 25th of July to the end of August, that's still the window that has to open. So there will be more availability coming, but in the meantime, you can check out plenty of private campgrounds, which have also been uh, very busy.